Jesus only, Jesus ever, Jesus all in all we sing, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Glorious Lord and Coming King. Good morning, everyone. Happy Christmas Eve. It's good to see all of you. Welcome here. Um, If you're visiting us today and you don't know who I am, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be unpacking some some of the scriptures uh, for you this morning and bringing a message. Um, You'll have to excuse me. I've got a bit of a throat thing going on here. Uh, So I brought water up onto the stage, which I don't usually do. So if I slurp water, um, it's better than me having a coughing fit. So you may just have to put up with that. I do apologize. Um, Before we dive into uh, the message today, I just wanted to um, share something with you. uh, And that is, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about Christ our sanctifier. And I was talking about how, uh, you know, we're saved not just to get a ticket to heaven, but actually saved into Jesus, and God wants to sanctify us and and help us to become more like him and to become more holy and so on. And one of the things that I shared with you is, uh, you know, many of us approach a new year and we we think about things we want to change in our lives. We want to become healthier and eat better and exercise more, those kind of things. Um, And it will be a great thing over the Christmas season to think about, well, what do I want to do with my spiritual walk this coming year, and it fit with a sanctification message. And I just wanted to share something with you that some of you know about, some of you have probably forgotten about, and maybe some of you have no idea about. And that is, there's a great resource called Right Now Media that the church subscribes to. And if you are a, um, if you're a regular attender at Seven Oaks, you can have access to this. It's kind of like the Netflix of Bible study. Um, so uh, you can set up your own profile and have access to an entire library of Bible studies and resources and lectures and for families. There's tons of kids' stuff on there, kids' programs and different things. Uh, so it's a little bit like having the House of James you know, on your phone or, uh, or on your tablet or on your TV or whatever. So I just wanted to share that with you because it might be that over Christmas you want to have a flick through, see the kinds of things they have available and it might be that you say, you know, I'd love to actually start the year out studying this. Or maybe you're a small group leader and you think, you know, it'd be great for our group to study this. So it's a great resource. You have access to it for free, and it would be a shame to not make use of it. So uh, if you are interested in that, um, you can go to our website under the media tab and go down to resources, and it comes up right now, media, and you can just uh, sign up there. You, I think you create a password. They'll ask some biographical information, and that's mainly so that they can sort of give you targeted stuff. Like if you check that you're married, they'll show you sort of marriage resources and so on, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you have access to it. So I just wanted to share that with you uh, as a great resource, and it might be something that this time of year you want to give some consideration to. So uh, that's right now media. All right, today we are in week four, the final week of Advent. And when Sunday, uh, the, the fourth Sunday of Advent, when it falls on Christmas Eve, it's actually the latest it can possibly fall, right? So here we are, week four of Advent, and tonight, as Brian already mentioned, we're also doing a, a Christmas carol service at 6.30 p.m. back in this room. Uh, it's usually around 45 to 50 minutes or so. Sing lots of carols. I'm going to share just a short, uh, really short message, uh, focus on Mary and connect it back to our 
our Women of the Genealogy series that we did uh, earlier on before Advent. So that's tonight. And so between our two services, essentially what we're doing is we're moving from Advent to, uh, to Christmas. And so this morning then, we are in Advent still, and as we've been saying, and it was mentioned again this morning, it's a season of waiting and watching. It's the expectant journey that we're on, waiting for the Christ child uh, to come. And this, uh, this Advent, what we decided to do was look at the alliance distinctive of the fourfold gospel. So uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about Christ our Savior. And then a couple of weeks ago, Christ our Sanctifier that I just mentioned uh, last Sunday, Pastor Zach preached about Christ, our healer, and today is Christ, our coming King. Uh, before I get into that subject and we start digging into the Scriptures, I want to just share with you a little bit more about the fourfold gospel as kind of a theological paradigm. And I want to do that because I think it would be a shame to leave the fourfold gospel behind and you still not to have a fully clear picture of, of what it is and why it's here. So one of the things I've said over and over um, during the series, and, and Zach said it last week as well, is that the fourfold gospel is simply a paradigm. It is a set of lenses through which we look at the person and mission of Jesus Christ. It is not everything we believe about Jesus. It is not everything we think we can say about Jesus. There's way more. It is not everything our denomination believes about Jesus. It is simply a paradigm. It is, it is a way the founder of our denomination wanted to articulate some things about Jesus that he wanted to raise up as important. And they actually come out of a cultural context. And I'll explain that in a moment. Our founder, A.B. Simpson, was not a self-designated theologian. He did not consider himself to be a theologian at all. He was like, no, 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 I'm a pastor. There's actually crossover between those two things, but he was very, very uh, concerned to be known as a pastor and not a theologian. In fact, there was a Southern uh, college that wanted to confer on him later on in his life um, an honorary doctorate degree because of his work in the kingdom, and he actually rejected it. He said, I'm not interested. I'm not a theologian. I'm a pastor, and what I'm here to do is to describe Jesus in the way that I feel led to describe him um, as, a way of, um, as a way of presenting him uh, th as Christ the center. And, and I want to talk more about who Jesus is and why that's important and how that ought to impact our lives rather than sort of, dis sort of disconnected theology. So he wrote teachings, he wrote sermons, he wrote hymns, a lot of them. Uh, to be honest with you, if you've been around the Alliance uh, very long, you know they're not very good hymns. They're not very singable. Um, uh, but he wrote a lot of hymns, and uh, he wrote a lot of uh, uh, sermons and so on, and he wrote some books, uh, but he was not a systematic theologian. A systematic the theologian is somebody who takes everything we believe we, we know about God and writes about it in a systematic and ordered way, beginning with, you know, the nature of God and the Trinity and creation to, to Jesus and his purpose and his work and the cross, to the, to the spirit, to ecclesiology, the church, eventually to eschatology, the theology of the last times, at the end times. And so that's a systematic theology. I've got a couple of them on my on my shelves, and some of you probably do as well. There, there exists no systematic theology according to Simpson. He never wrote one. He wasn't a theologian. 
So there is no systematic theology. His focus was on Christ and what all of it means. Now, it came out of a historical context, and I'm going to explain to you the historical context, so we don't think he sat there one day and said, you know what, I want to say some things about Jesus. I think four is a really good number, so I'm going to say four things about him, and these are the four things I'm going to say. That's not what he did. What he did was, was describe Jesus as a way to minister into and speak prophetically into the context in which he ministered. And so Simpson was concerned with cheap grace. Cheap grace. He rallied against this idea that we make a decision for Jesus, to put it quite crudely, to get out of going to hell. Like he rallied against that kind of idea. And I talked to you a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago when I said, you know what, we have to understand salvation a little bit more than just, I give my life to Jesus, so I get my ticket to heaven, I tuck it in my pocket for judgment day, and then largely forget about it. And largely ignore Jesus knowing that I've got my fire insurance. We have to understand salvation is more than that. It's more fully orbed than that. And Simpson was really concerned about this in the 19th century, the, the late 1800s. We are not saved simply to get out of hell. We're actually saved into the fullness of Jesus Christ. We're saved into the fullness of Jesus. And that includes some salvation things, initial things like justification and redemption and so on. But it needs to include sanctification, an ongoing process of being formed into the likeness of Jesus. Simpson had two audiences. One was unbelievers. So he did the work of an evangelist. But the other audience was the evangelical church of the 19th century. And he was speaking to them and challenging them and calling them back to a fresh encounter with Jesus, calling nominal Christians, nominal means in name only, Christians back to a full encounter with Christ, rallying against this cheap grace into a full-orbed encounter because he knew the churches that are actually full of people who are loving Jesus and moving towards him and posturing themselves towards him and opening up their lives for him to do his sanctifying work in them, who are obeying him and growing in him, those kind of churches grow and expand and have a profound influence on the world. Churches full of people who are just warming pews because that's what they do on Sunday morning because they once prayed a prayer and now this is what they do on Sunday morning are stale and stagnant and don't go anywhere. That was the evangelical church of the 19th century, and I think we could say we need that message as well here, the evangelical church in the 21st century, because across this country and across our world, there are all kinds of, of people who are sitting in church just because that's what they do, but the rest of their life does not look anything like a fully laid down, surrendered, obedient life to Jesus. So what he was doing was calling for a renewal of the church. And that's what we need to do today again. And that's why we've been preaching over these last few years about what it means to live in renewal. It's why we've been running things like the Soul Care Conference, asking, calling one another to go deeper in Jesus. So that's the context in which it came out of. It wasn't just some detached theology he made up. It was actually through his lived experience of what he was calling the church into. So I wanted to share that with you before we leave the fourfold gospel behind so you have a full understanding and also see the absolute relevance of this teaching for today. So the final fold of the fourfold gospel is Christ our coming King. 
Simpson believed fundamentally Jesus was our Savior. He believed fundamentally that we needed to be saved into a sanctified life that Christ was doing in us. He also believed that we ought to be seeking Christ as our healer for ourselves and for one another. That came out of his own experience of profound healing. And he connected it theologically to uh, the atonement. Um, I've preached healing like this before uh, as well. You've heard me preach it this way as well, that healing uh, not only is a wonderful blessing to the person who is healed, but it's also a profound kingdom sign. It was when Jesus healed. What it is, it's actually a quality of the future life that we're all being called into, of, of, of a quality of the life of the spiritual realm of God that actually breaks into the present and manifests itself here on earth in our brokenness as a sign of the kingdom, as a foretaste of the kingdom. And this is what you're all going to experience one day and every level of your being. That is also theologically what healing is about. And the final thing he emphasized in the fourfold gospel is that Jesus will return again. But this time he will not be coming as a humble baby like we're going to celebrate tonight, but he'll be coming as a victorious king where he will vanquish evil. Who can't wait for that? He will vanquish evil in this world and he will inaugurate a new kingdom, Christ our coming king. And in short then, he challenges, so what does it mean to live expectantly as though Jesus was coming because he could come anytime? He may actually return before I finish this sermon or he may come in three weeks or a hundred years. We don't actually know, but we need to live as though it's tomorrow. So when it comes to understanding uh, Jesus, the, Jesus' second coming, the coming king, there's two things we need to talk about first. We need to talk about the end of life. We have to talk about death. And we need to talk about the end of the world as well. We need to talk about those two things. So firstly, uh, in talking about uh, death, in the book of Genesis, the account we have of the the wonderful creation of the beautiful cosmos into which God then created humanity to live and to thrive and to have uh, a life and experience and so on. Uh, this, this is described for us in Genesis. And one of the key elements to that history that we read about, you know, the Garden of Eden, all those wonderful things, is that humanity had unfettered access to God. And it's described in beautiful, intimate ways that we could talk with him and walk in the cool of the garden with him. But after the fall of humanity, when humans rebelled against God, what happened was humans were were pushed out of the garden and left to roam the earth. And what followed them was judgment and curses. And judgment and curses because of our own rebellion has been following us throughout human history. And read the news today, you'll read about those same curses and judgments that continue to exhibit themselves in our world today. Philosophers and politicians have foolishly said, one day we'll kind of evolve ourselves out of all this brokenness and war and so on. No, we won't. We're as stupid as we were 2,000 years ago. We're as stupid as we were 6,000 years ago. We don't learn. We won't ever fix that. Right? So after the fall... We're left to roam the earth. And death in the way that humans now experience that is presented to us in in Scripture as an ugly intrusion into God's good creation. And anybody in this room who's ever lost a loved one knows what that feels like. It's ugly. It hurts. It 
it's sad, it's brutal, it's awful. In the scriptures, Jesus himself mourned the death of a close friend, Lazarus. We read about Jesus weeping and, and how he's bereaved. He's not, he's not some remote God that just allows us to suffer down here, but he actually entered into our suffering. He knows what it's like to lose someone. What happens to people after they die, what happens to dead people, according to the Bible, in the Old Testament at least, is actually quite murky and muddy. We actually don't really know a lot. We're not given a lot of information. The patriarchs talk about how their gray heads go down to Sheol, this place called Sheol. It isn't really described for us very well, but it seems to be the shadowy place of the dead that they believed sort of existed. It's where they went. It was a journey of descent. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is all pre-Jesus. Uh, I don't think we want to confuse Sheol with the idea of heaven and hell, uh, but it was this place that they believed that they went to. That's all we can really say about the Old Testament. We simply don't know. But in the New Testament, suddenly death changes. And what I mean by that is it doesn't change in the sense that people don't die anymore. They still die. Everybody dies. But there's a whole new element now. There is a new opportunity suddenly open to human beings that was not open to them before. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is such a shocking event on a number of levels. But what it means is that death now doesn't have to have the same finality that it used to have. Coming on the screen for you is 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It doesn't have the same finality anymore. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church family, I don't think we realize the radical nature of the resurrection, the structures of reality changed in that moment. Something that was impossible before was suddenly alive with possibility for human beings. It's incredible. Yeah. Jesus won victory over death, and as the first fruits of resurrection, he paved the way for you and I to also enjoy a bodily resurrection of our own at the end of time, if we know Jesus, raised imperishable and immortal to live in a new perfected creation. Part of the shocking news of that for Jewish people at the time was at first they never expected that Messiah would die in the way he died, but also they never would have expected him to be resurrected either. No Jew would ever have thought that. The Jews held to a one-time end of the cosmos future resurrection of the righteous. If you had told them, yeah, that's true, except there will be one human who right in the middle of history is going to have his own personal resurrection, they wouldn't have understood that. It wouldn't have made sense to them. What we learn from 1 Corinthians is that Jesus was resurrected, and we know that it was about defeating death and paving the way for salvation and so on, but it was also about providing a prototype, an example, a first fruits on which everything else would be built. 
Paul calls it the first fruits. It provides for us the model and the vision and the picture of what will happen to you and me at the end of time. If we know Jesus, we will be resurrected like Jesus, our bodies now fitted for the new age to come. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when you're reading the ends of the Gospels and you're reading about Jesus' resurrection uh, appearances and how he's described and what he does, have you ever stopped and thought, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be, re- you're not going to do things that God does, but, but I'm going to get to have a body just like his. That's the promise. It's remarkable. It's incredible. So that's, that's death understood in the scriptures. Let us jump to Revelation 21. We're going to talk a, a little bit about the, the end of time. Starting at verse 1, reading to verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Excuse me just a moment. I've said this to you before, that the Revelation is a book of unveiling. If you want to understand the Revelation the best, the way that you understand it is that there is a thin veil or a curtain that separates how we experience life here on earth and how God experiences life in the heavens, in God's realm of existence. And there's a curtain between the two. And Revelation is like God allowed that curtain just to be pulled aside just for a moment. So the Apostle John, who was on the island of Patmos in AD 96, was able to peer through and then write down what he saw. And it's found for us in the book of Revelation. God was communicating some things. So sometimes I'm like, God, I wish you told us a bit more. You know? But anyway, uh, he told us what we need to know. And so that's okay. But this is what, this is the stuff God wanted us to know. And we just read from chapter 21, which is like the grand finale of things God was revealing to humans as it pertains to the end times, the end of all things. It's the final part of the apocalyptic visions. There is a chapter 22 as well, but it's, it's part of that end. And we read about a new heavens and a new earth. And it's a fusing together and a coming together of heaven and earth. It's a remaking, and we're told there'll be no tears and no pain and no death and no war and no relationship breakdown and all of those things that plague us, those things will be gone. And it will be a coming to reality of God's perfected vision for himself and humanity to dwell together forever in harmony and bliss and perfection. And it's our great hope. And if you know Jesus and you're sitting here and you know Jesus, that's what lies ahead for you, that great hope. But in truth, church family, uh, we need to spend a little bit of time here because Christians have a tendency to get a bit muddy and murky in the way they think about that. 
And I've said it before, and some of you have come and asked me about it, and so I'll say it again now, and I'll try to explain it a little more. But, but what, what happened, what's happened in history is that, particularly in the Western world, and therefore the Western church, and therefore Western theology, is that we've been so influenced by Greek thinking, which is very dualistic, and very much a separation of the spiritual and the physical, and there's been all kinds of things that that is both problems and good things that that's created. Um, but, what, but, but what happens is we, we, we therefore get this idea that if we know Jesus, when we die, our soul separates from our body and we get to float off somewhere to some, some place called heaven. And we have this notion and we think the Bible teaches it, but the Bible doesn't teach that. And that may be a little bit shocking to you because maybe you've always been taught that. We get this idea that we go off then to some heavenly place that we call heaven and the earth will just burn up because the earth is bad and and that's it. We talk about going to heaven when we die. We talk about how our loved ones are now in heaven. And it's not that that's all completely untrue. It's just it's partly untrue. And, And it's muddy and it's a murky way to think about it, and I'm going to try to help us clear it up a little bit. Let me just say, before anybody's really nervous, saying, well, what's, what's Jamie saying about my loved one? Where's my loved one? Let me just say, it's, it's, it's true in the sense that if you have a loved one who's passed away, they are somehow, some way with Jesus. So you don't need to worry. But I'll talk about that more in a minute. What I want to do is talk to you about how it's untrue. It is untrue in the sense they have not arrived in their final resting place in the final state called heaven. The Bible does not teach that. In popular, in popular thinking, we tend to think that because we've been taught it, but it's, it's actually not really Hebraic, Judaic, Judaic kind of teaching. It's more Greek. So it's untrue in that sense as though we're living in heaven as some geographic place, usually in popular understanding or visions of pearly gates rising out of a carpet of clouds with angels all over the place and people playing harps and little fat baby cherubs lying around all over the place. Right? That's how it's often viewed. That sounds horrible to me. (laughs) I hope it sounds horrible to you, but I'm not interested in that. Uh, That's what people tend to think about heaven. Or you hear people in, in culture say, my loved one died, they've, gone and they've gotten their wings now and they've gone to be angels. What are you talking about? We don't become angels. That's, it's not, that's not the right way to think about it. So try to get that out of your mind. If that was true, then what it would mean is that we're forced to believe that every individual when they die immediately has their own personal judgment. They stand before you know, the judgment seat of Christ and maybe or maybe not in your thinking they get their resurrection body and then they either go to heaven or they go to hell and, and, and that's it. They're in their kind of final state. But according to Revelation, all that happens at the end of time. That doesn't happen when each individual dies. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches an end times, final judgment, a corporate resurrection at the final trumpet blast in the twinkling of an eye. It doesn't happen to each individual. It's also not true that we go to heaven and the earth simply burns up, that God just scraps the earth. Actually, we dwell on earth. It's just, it's a new earth and it's radically remade. It's a new creation. And as we just read a moment ago, the new Jerusalem comes out of sky down to earth. We don't float up there. It comes down and it fuses with earth. And there's a beautiful new heavens and a new earth. And God comes and dwells with us. 
And if we were to read on in chapter 21, you would also read that there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Do you know why there's no temple? Because God is the temple. We don't need a holy of holies now and be a priest and you know, do all these things. We have access to him. Do you know what else it says? It says the gates of the New Jerusalem, they're all open all day long. We can come and go as we please. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 8, 19 to 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. New creation. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Here we have the idea of creation itself, the world, non-human creation, groaning and longing. It's under futility and decay. It's why there's floods and tsunamis and earthquakes and what are they called? Weather bombs and heat domes and what are they called? The atmospheric rivers, all those funny things they're coming up with. It's a lot of rain and a lot of sun. Um, the created world is, is longing for its renewal and perfection, just like our bodies are. And it will be wonderfully remade. We don't float off to some disembodied heaven on a cloud and play harps all day. We get to inhabit a new earth. That's what the Bible teaches. Eugene Peterson says, the Bible begins quite logically with a beginning, creation, but then it ends with a not quite so logically, beginning. It doesn't begin with a beginning and end with an end. It begins with a beginning and ends with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice renewal, uh, renewed creation of Revelation, is what Peterson says. But it leaves a question. So what are you saying about my loved ones? Where are they? I thought they were in the clouds with Jesus, waiting for me to go and join them. Where are they? Well, we can relax and trust God because there are plenty of places in the scriptures that suggest that those who are in Christ, who died in Christ, are safe. We'll just read three really quickly. Romans 8, 38 to 39. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So people who have died in Christ cannot be separated from God's love. So they're still in his love. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul himself understood this idea of somehow departing and being with Christ. And the, the, probably the most famous is Luke 23, 43, where the, the thief on the cross turns to Jesus and, and says, remember me in your, age, in, in your kingdom. And Jesus himself from his mouth says, truly I tell you today, not end of time, today you'll be with me in paradise. So our loved ones are safe. They're happy. They're in the presence of Jesus. They're just not in some disembodied heaven. Let's get that out of our minds. We don't really know where they are. We don't really need to know. 
And the New Testament just tells us that they're safe. The point today, <clears throat> and actually if we had time together, we could talk about some of the philosophical, the- theological theories out there like soul sleep. They're just actually asleep and then they wake on judgment day or, or how God is outside of time. We're so bound by time, but God's outside of time. So there with God and, and all of human history is present to God at the same time because he's not bound. Anyway, we could go on and on about that kind of thing. It would be interesting, but we don't have time today. The point today is to clear up this muddy and murky and not quite right understanding of what happens after we die. To resist the idea that all of that end time stuff happens immediately, the Bible teaches that that is still to come in all of its wonderfulness as we, we live in the new created earth. All of this stuff I've been talking about this morning related to death and the end of the world and all of that is all connected to our our theme, which is the coming king, the second coming. Jesus, our coming king, over and over, the New Testament tells us that Jesus will return once more. And many of the New Testament saints expected it in their lifetimes. And for 2,000 years, people have lived and looked for and hoped for that to happen. The coming king, the return of Christ, will be the catalyst for all the stuff we've been talking about. The final overthrow of evil, the judgment of the nations, the judgment seat of Christ, the general resurrection, the new Jerusalem, the recreated heavens and earth, and there's all kinds of ways in which people have tried to piece together the order and how all of it works and where the millennium fits in and all those things, and those are great conversations to have, except the point today is simply that all of that stuff is connected to the coming king, the return of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.11, then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Revelation 1.7, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail, so, so it is to be, Amen. And one of my favorites, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. See, it doesn't happen early. It happens at the end. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, the coming king, what does that all mean for us then, and how should we live in the light of it? Sorry. <clears throat> Three things. Let me encourage you to pursue Christ while he may be found. Um, if you're sitting there and you're not really sure about Jesus, you've never made a commitment to him, you're not even really sure what you think about God, uh, let me say the most important thing that I could ever say to you in my entire life, and that is pursue Christ while he may be found. You might think, oh, it's all garbage. I don't believe it. Well, okay, but you're going to live 70, 80, 90 years or whatever, however long you live. Surely it's worth giving a few weeks of your life over to just seeing if it's real. Try asking him. Talk to him. Ask him to, if he's real to reveal himself to you. But pursue him while he may be found because let me tell you, and I say this gravely, 
there will be a time when it's too late. The day will come when it's too late for him to be found. You won't be able to find him anymore. And uh, God loves you and wants you to know him. Seek him before he returns. Seek him while he can still be found. Secondly, for those of us who already know him, may his imminent return motivate us to, to, to live well, to live holy lives. The stuff we were talking earlier about sanctification, to seek him and to seek to allow him to sanctify you and change you and transform you and prepare you for his return. Don't you want to be ready? That was Simpson's hope. Don't just be a religious person and figure you've got your ticket to heaven. Now I'm going to go and live my life however I want. Cheap grace. Seek and allow him to prepare you as a bride prepared for the bridegroom. Grow, posture yourself towards him, pursue him, be prepared and watchful. And thirdly, Witness to the lost. There are lost people in your families, in your workplaces, in your condominium buildings, in your schools, in your neighborhoods. And I know that the message of Christ is increasingly becoming offensive in Canada and in the West in general. It's, it's seen as offensive more and more. But that's unfortunate. But there are people that desperately need to hear the message of Jesus in our world. And it doesn't have to come across as offensive. It comes across as incredibly loving. And so let me encourage you to love those people, to show them Christ, to build relationships with people, and maybe you get a platform in which they will listen to you share your hope as they have relationship with you. The King is coming. Are we ready? Amen. Amen. Yeah,